Chacon. Welcome to Words on a Wire. Today I'm going to talk to Fred Arroyo about his brand new book, Sown in Earth, Essays of Memory and Belonging. He is the author of two books of fictions. This is his very first book of essays, and he is a professor at Middle State Tennessee University. Fred, welcome back to Words on a Wire. Thank you for having me. Well, it's always great to talk to you. You have this this uh, piece about you. I called you earlier this morning to uh, to talk a little bit about our our uh, recording, and I thought, okay, this dude is either on heroin, or he is the most <laughs> relaxed person in the mornings that I've ever ever encountered. And uh, so I asked you about it. I said, are you okay? And you said very calmly, are you okay? And I go, okay, yeah, this guy's on heroin. But then when I asked you what it was, what did you tell me? Oh, that I was writing. That you were and writing. I was just, <laughs> yeah. And, I, <laughs> and then I was just very calm, probably because of that. Because, and, you know, oh, go ahead. No, no. Oh, um, you know that uh, in my in my new book, Soul and Earth, Essays of Memory and Belonging, I, I quote uh, or paraphrase Rilke, the poet, uh, Marie Rilke. And, oh, no, uh, not, not, not Rilke, the plumber. But the poem. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming. Uh, <laughs> on the uh, what he calls the purity of the morning, um, and that you know that's a a really special, wonderful thing to always keep in mind that every morning when you wake up, no matter how bad your nightmares were, no matter how restless your sleep was, no matter how bad the day was before, the morning is pure and. Uh, you know, you're like your own little small God awakening that morning. And so I just have certain routines and habits where I sit at this 20 some year old writing table in front of a window with coffee and lots of scraps of paper or uh, <laughs> note cards. And I just write whatever, you know, comes about in that room. Wow, and, that's beautiful. Uh, so there's a little calmness in that because you're, you know, you're trying not to um, I like that, that element in, uh, Zen mind, beginner's mind, where it's that whole focus on what you're doing in the morning like that right. is not special. And you, you have to give up your ego and give up your desires and give up that you're doing something special, like being, uh, I never use the word author for myself, <laughs> you know, I, I'm just a simple writer. And if you can give away those kind of things and that make it so special, you'll discover things that you never knew was possible. Wow. You know, that, that, uh, that what you experience in the morning, I imagine you don't have the news playing in the background. You know, it's not a lot of noise <laughs> that it's a, that you, that your place is quiet and that, that, that kind of corresponds to your style of writing. Your, your style of writing is very quiet and very peaceful. And it's like, uh, a rhythmic and emotional labyrinth. It could it could go deeply into memory and into the into the unconscious and into the complexity of being being a human being. And I, I imagine you need quiet to get where you're going in your writing. Absolutely, um, it's actually part of the difficulty of uh, what's been happening the past few months because. I finally finished this book and went through everything that needed to be 
done for it to get out into the world and then the pandemic hit right and then i became a little too obsessive about <laughs> you know watching the news and it's bad like once you start the day and you start letting certain things creep into your world it can just you know it has effects for the rest of the world rest oh, of the day man. excuse me you know so yeah you i like to get in that spot and have that i like the way that you describe the the writing and what it reminded me of was uh, when I first started writing, I had I had no idea what I was doing, and I really didn't have any conception of genre except for prose and poetry. But I was just writing things, and I really didn't care if they were autobiographical, if they were fictions, and really they were more closer to like essays in some ways. Right, and. Um, after a while, though, you know, I got into thinking really, I made a mistake of using the word, uh, not a mistake, but confusing the words meditation and mediation. Mm. And I was really thinking about how, as a novelist, that's what you do is you create this book, this world, this reality that creates a form of mediation so that you pull the reader out of the world in which they live in and they have to now almost be in triangulation and start to think about the imaginative world compared to their real world mm -hmm. but um well, i realized that do you think that that readers are are more and more reluctant especially with you know what you're talking about how the pandemic has has caused addiction almost to to the news and and probably for a lot of people to social media and to their screen do you think that uh the pandemic and, and the whole result might make the reader a little bit more reluctant to go that to go that deeply to go to go along with the with a quiet narrative that they always want interruptions sure uh but i think it's i think it's probably something that began before the pandemic and that's just the change right right, right. it just it just sped you know, it up quite a bit yeah it's just everyone's uh you know what we're talking about is a conception of time um and attention. And so, you know, you're describing my writing as something that you're going to have to have to give up your sense of time and really be there and be there attentive because that's what the writing is. Right. But yeah, a lot of, you know, a lot of readers don't seem to have a, a great amount of patience or attention or time that they want things a, a little bit quicker, a little bit more shorter. Um, almost to, you know, like so that I sometimes feel very old fashioned because I like to create descriptions and lyrical moments. And a lot of people don't have, you know, patience for that. Well, well you are it's, old fashioned. You're, you're old, you're an old fashioned writer in the, in the great sense of the word in a, in a, your, your, your writing is, is like poetry. You, you were talking about how sometimes you blur the, the, uh, the, 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 the line between, uh, fiction and memoir, which, which is true. I mean, this book that you just came out with, which is of course, you know, so beautiful in, in, in many ways and so quiet, um, sown in earth really kind of brings me back to your previous two books, the region of lost names and Western Avenue. Cause when I go into those, I almost feel like it's, it's, uh, it's like even in those stories, it's an it's an exploration of the inner self. 
Yeah, and that was that was kind of where I was going with that mistake with using the word mediation. And what I focused more was on the element of meditation right. uh, and um, how writing is a form of meditation. Uh, and I got most of that probably from Spanish philosopher Ortega y Gasset uh-huh. and how he talked about essays and writing being a form of meditation and how you salvage right. the things that you love. Oh, this, but, is, um, this is two guys, Ortega and Gosset? No, 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 that's a uh, joke. That's a joke. Ortega y Gasset. Okay, I thought you. I was like, I'm yeah, sure you know Ortega him. Ortega y Gasset. Anyway, yeah, yeah. sorry, that was a bad joke. Um, but you were talking. But, about, but oh. what you're, but what you're raising is really important, um, because that's been a response. Your response has been a response that I've gotten from a lot of readers, and it has to do with, and I'm not sure exactly how it came about, but it's kind of like the, the boat, the. Uh, the way in which in this new book, I was able to like capture this sense of objectivity and intimacy at the same exact time. So that I'm able to, you know, write about characters in a way in which I'm not being uh, negative or trying to get back at them Mm -hmm. uh, or being hateful, but I'm trying to be almost as compassionate as I can. And I think that came from writing fiction and really working a lot on the, you know, the concept of psychic distance and trying to figure out when you really need that psychic distance and when you don't. And that that intimacy and immediacy is so important in fiction. That's what people come usually to literature for is because they want to have that intimacy and immediacy. Right. You were talking earlier about uh, the pandemic and how it affected you and reading the news and how reading the news can certainly uh cause a you know very strong you know emotional reactions uh anger you know sadness uh, fear especially when we have the pandemic parallel to the donald trump story that is you know keeping many people obsessed and clicking on news story after news story and and looking up news more than they ever have before because there's so many parallel unique narratives going on the threat to democracy and the threat to our lives with the with the deadly pandemic uh, and if you add social media uh, to that which you know is created to get us addicted to clicking and to keep us on and to keep us uh, uh, you know experiencing dopamine and then a few minutes later experiencing fear uh, uh, you're talking about it's increasingly difficult to be in this this peaceful space. Uh, now a lot of people wake up in the morning. First thing they do is check their social media. First thing they they do is check the news. How do you how do you keep apart from that world in order to allow yourself to enter into the worlds that you do and that you present to the reader? Well, it's uh, the answer is just to to make a conscious choice of that. Um, and part of, you know, and then sometimes part of that conscious choice is taking like really long breaks, like three, four months uh, of not trying to be on social media at all, uh-huh. for example. Um, but it's tough because, you know, this is broaching on the larger question, which has been the question on my mind the last year. And that is, you know, like, why write? What is the reason to write? Oh my God, you're because, asking that question. Because <laughs> you know, there's so many important, so many other things that seem so important. But there's a, um, 
there's a little uh, there's a little part in Sown and Earth where I'm uh, writing about giving a reading in California, and this uh, this professor uh, from China came up to me. He was an English professor. He started talking to me, and he said, "You know, uh, I teach Filipino literature a lot." And he said, "When I was reading your book, there's just so many connections, and I see." in the literature, these similar stories and experiences. And um, I remembered that when I was driving, you know, on, near Big Sur, I saw these men out in the field working and they were in a lettuce field and their heads were all wrapped with these white clothes and they were brown men, but I couldn't really tell if they were, you know, Latinos or if they were Filipinos. And, um, in that part, I, I just wrote this little section, which I think speaks to the question you're raising. And uh, I wrote something like this. I wasn't special. There wasn't anything unique about what I did, nor was I very smart in being a writer. I just stared for a long time at ordinary things, held within me images that I let swirl and swirl through my memory and imagination until they became a deep river. When I sat down to write, they welled up in my mind. I tried to feel and see through them, and they helped me to write down the words. And so um, there's different versions of what it means to be a writer in this new book, Sown and Earth, but that one that I, that little one that I just read right now, that one is like, you know, the key one to me to keep what I do very simple right. and folk and focused and see that it's different than all the other social things that you mentioned. Um, that's why I like this, uh, this quote by Jim Harrison. He has on his, he had on his wall and it said something like, uh, I'm only a writer. And so if you know, you're only a writer, <laughs> uh, that, that really helps you to really, push aside all the other things. Right. But but of course there's other people who don't want to be a writer. Like if they do the list of things, they may be a writer, but being a writer is like number seven or number eight. And <laughs> there's these other things right. that they want to be, you know, that they want to be as well. So I just kind of remind myself of that. You know, the the uh conventional uh advice and probably a little apocryphal advice. I'm not sure that there's even a writing teacher that actually teaches this, but nonetheless, the advice is uh, uh, to, um, uh, when, when you're writing, to, uh, to write with a image of the reader in mind, you know, uh, with somebody like perhaps Updike, it would be, uh, you know, uh, East Coast young man, uh, maybe uh, going to college or something like that, or you know, this idea of imagining the ideal reader. Uh, do you ever imagine the ideal reader or is that just like a whole false thing that they, they tell writers who aren't really serious about writing? Oh, I think, I think it is a, I think it is a false thing because um, you're really, because uh, there's two reasons. And one reason, of course, is that you want to keep as many uh, the poet John Cady was told me one time about when I was struggling with that and trying to name who the audience was. Mm -hmm. He was like, he was just like, that's crazy. Why would you want to limit your writing in that way? Push, push all ideas of audience or reader out of the room. Right. 
and uh, just write what you need to write. Just, and just then, be a writer. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, and then uh, it's the other thing too is that that's tied, I think, to some conception of who you that some conception that you as a person is equal to you as a writer. But I've written for so long that I know that the person who walks around in the world named Fred Arroyo is different than the Fred Arroyo who sits down and writes. Right. Um, they're two different people. Like Borges and, and I. Uh, that's correct, or, yes. Or yeah. the, other, uh, the other Borges, I think, is the, the name of that particular piece, where there's Borges, the writer, and then Borges, the, the guy who sits down and eats breakfast. That's right. Yeah. Um, and he comes to that conclusion that I don't know... Uh, I don't know which one is writing these words, which is the, the, the work that we're reading at that point. But it's also, um, there's a book by a writer, Icelandic Canadian, Christina Gunnar's called The Stranger in the Room. And she describes it in a way that really speaks to me that I didn't really understand. That is that when you are writing in, the, in your room, when you're there, in that early morning or whatever that is for you, there has to be a moment in which you're trying to open up a space in which a stranger arrives at right. the door and you let that stranger come into the room. And that's the that language. Be, that's the language. Yeah. You, know, you, you, yeah, you yeah. write them in with the language. Cause I mean, if somebody is really interested in beautiful writing, they're going to enter into these, these, uh, these essays, these, these pieces of memoir in sown on earth or sown in earth. Uh, that's that's what lets them in. But if, if you it. think about this idea of, of, of visualizing an ideal reader, which, again, I think uh, ultimately writers come to the conclusion that it's false and perhaps they do default to the next level of supposed audience, which Borges uh, also articulated about. He said, um, uh, you know, I write the kind of stories I want to read. Yes. Uh, if it interests me, then then you know then I'm in it. And I think Flannery O'Connor even echoed this in her own articulate way. Something about you know you have to, you have to care what happens in your story. You have to be absorbed in it. And and I'm thinking yeah. that, but even now, with, I don't mean to keep going back to this, but with the way things are going right now and how we're all connected to a screen, how we we are very rarely uh, within not in arm reach of our phone or of some sort of device that we believe connects us. Uh, and we are often given these choices that are created by algorithms that know us, frankly, better than we do. How can we even know ourselves? How can we even write to ourselves anymore? Who are we writing to? Are we writing to, you know, and, and I think, you know, ultimately, you need to do what Fred Arroyo does. You need to sit down in the silence in the morning and just listen to the emptiness and, and allow the language to, to take you. And the best you can do is invite people into this book. And, and I really, for one, appreciate being invited into here because it's a quiet, beautiful world that I don't experience almost every day. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, and that's the that's the you know the most uh, scariest and insidious thing that you don't want the you don't want the you know you don't want the uh, electronic world to create a version of yourself. You want to try to invent and create that version of your best self. I would say too that even though you know we're we're talking about the fallacy of having that audience, 
when you just mentioned Borges, I mean, it brings up the other side for me is that you are also writing, uh, you're writing for dead writers or you're writing for favorite books. So every time I'm working on a project, I get a set of half a dozen books or let's say, and those books are real key to what I'm really meditating on and what I'm creating. So it's almost like in some ways I am, uh, you know, creating a, a dialogue or even a right. homage, right. a homage to those books. And uh, unfortunately, I had a lot of uh, something to do probably with my age, but there were a lot of uh, older white males that um, who are, whose experiences are totally different than my experiences, that as I became older, they became important to me as writers. And like in a span of like a year or two, they all died. And it was sort of sad because it was like, wow, I just was, I was just kind of discovering wow. these writers and their worlds, you know, and now they're gone. Yeah. But um, now that they're gone, maybe you can, you know, even go more deeply into them. <laughs> exactly. Um, and keep them alive in a certain way, just even if it's in a sentence that reverberates somewhat with what they had done. You know, so, when, yeah. when things are quiet, it's in the morning, you're looking out your window, you have your cup of coffee and you're writing. And I haven't seen where you live, but I imagine that there's books that can be seen from the chair that you sit in. And if it's like my office where I'm recording right now, the books that I have around me that are visible are books that I either like the most or that I am currently interacting with. And the books that I have read and love and hate and whatever are in another part of the office that I can't readily see. And most of the books that are surrounding me right now as I look around are uh, the writers are dead. And so in, in a sense, if that's true, what you're saying, and I think it's true for me too, we write in response to these writers that we've admired and, and we want to if not re-enter the worlds they created to experience it our own way, in, 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 in a way, the ideal audience is the dead. We write for the dead. Yes. <laughs> I try to keep my, uh, I try to keep my uh, current writing room. Uh, I accumulated thousands, you know, like many, I, I accumulated way too many books. Right. Uh, I, I put a whole bunch in storage actually recently and put a whole bunch in my office at school. So in my work, my writing room, I try to keep uh, out, have as little amount of books as I can, but I do have a few shelves and those shelves usually aren't uh, of writers that I'm working with now, but they're for future projects. Wow. <laughs> they're things I want, they're things I want to get to. And so that really is helpful. Hmm. Um, the other thing of that though, is that uh, I've got a, outside my window, uh, I mean, I live in an urban area, but I have a kind of, I have a setting that is more like country setting. And outside my window, I guess about 600 feet from my window is a, a little studio and um, that studio, I tried to clean it out several times and I always imagined it would be a great writing space and it's got these windows facing the sun, but um, it had some damage with rain, I guess, uh, at some time in the last 10 years. 
and the smell in there is really terrible. <laughs> and uh, so I, I cannot sit in there. However, I'm always looking at it and thinking about that. And I'm thinking about the relationship between wanting an ideal little kind of like bare bone studio like that and sitting at this desk. But on the corner of it, I have hanging instead of a flag, but on the, the apparatus that you put a flag in, I have uh, three uh, lobster fishing buoys from Nova Scotia. <laughs> and um, the reason I have those is because uh, it was dumb. I bought them for like $4 and just carried them around. I, I had a long summer trip up in the Maritimes. And part of that trip was I, uh, I camped at a, a campground called McLeod's Campground. And when I was there, all the time when we were driving through Nova Scotia, I was telling my son stories of the great Canadian writer, Alistair McLeod. And I was pointing out geographical locations and telling the short story or the novel, thinking about him. And uh, one day I was doing laundry at the campground. There was an older gentleman there and I said, I know this is a stupid question. You probably get this asked a lot, but are you related to Alistair McLeod? <laughs> and he said, and he said, well, uh, yes. In fact, he's my uh, second cousin. And I said, oh, really? And then we got into a big conversation. And he said, that's his house right up there. Uh, you should go talk to his wife and tell him that you uh, teach his work at a university in America and you're a writer, she would be happy to hear that. And then he got real serious and sad and, you know, and he said, cause you know, today is the, the second anniversary of Alistair's death. And I, uh, you know, I was like, Oh my God, I had forgotten about that. And then we just talked a little bit more. And I said, do you think I could go see his writing shack? And he gave me directions and we drove to the end of this dirt road and then walked up this long moor and we got to Alistair's writing shack, which is right on the ocean, looking on a big cliff, looking out on the ocean. And it was the most bare bone shack there was. And uh, there was nothing, no heat, no electricity, but- And, and did it smell? <laughs> no. Um, no, that's- In fact, no, no. <laughs> in fact, I- uh, because you were saying that the shack out back. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Time. No, no, this was, this smelled of salt and, you know, the ocean and wow. then the, the, the fir trees and everything around it. But there was a, there were just two objects in there. One was a big piece of plywood that was nailed to the wall, which was his desk under a window. Uh -huh. And then there was a metal chair and the metal chair was rusted, I suppose, from the, the salt and maybe some rain, but the metal chair on the seat, it had the imprint of his, uh, his two butt cheeks <laughs> wow. from, you did, know, did you, 30, get a, did you get a picture of it? I got a picture of me. I sat down in that chair and it fit me perfectly. And I spent wow. some time writing in that shack. Wow. That's, that's um, an amazing story. That's, that's beautiful. You know, you know what it, 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 shows me somebody who has the the ability to slow down and to be in the moment and to just experience what is given to you is well first of all that's rare i think a lot of us would be oh, i'd love to see a shack but i'm on my way and my son is you know 
you know, impatient, <laughs> you know, but that you take the time to do that and that you walk across the moor. It's a beautiful image and you see the, uh, uh, the shack that you take the time. I imagine when you, when you are as patient as you are, and you are in the moment that you are, these incredible coincidences or serendipitous moments happen occasionally, like the fact that all this happened on the anniversary of his death. Do you find yourself constantly feeling these affirmations from, from the universe as you are stuck in the moment? Uh, absolutely. It's, and that, and then that is the, this real, you know, this conflict between it being like some, most often a simple ordinary moment, but yet that connection or coincidence becomes, you know, very extraordinary. Um, but it's important not to search them out, right. but to, you know, to allow them to happen. But that's also the, I have a feeling that it happens for me because uh, it's the way in which memory is a form of matter for me mm. that, you know, I'm, I'm always still thinking about that, uh, that visit to a shack and how that's going to become something that I can do something with. Um, and so memory like that, when you're sitting down and you're quiet and it comes back to you in a certain way like that through an image, a scene, uh, it becomes matter because it's so physical and, and visceral, you know, the way that it fills you up with emotions, uh, the way you may tremble a little bit. And then you know there's something there that you got to keep working with because the, the memory is essential to you. And, and one it's of important. your talents as a writer is that you're able to bring your reader there too. Like when, when you entered into that shack, I entered yeah. into it with you. And when you sell, sat on that chair and felt your buns you know, fall into the groove of his buns, my buns fell into it too. <laughs> Yeah, that's what's essential um, about your work is that you 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 still have that ability to bring us into a text and allow us to linger uh, for a long time. I I, I want to read something from uh, Sown in Earth. It's uh, it's the beginning of a, a piece called Next Country. Uh, I just want to read a couple of sentences. A false start to write memory is to select to know that which is chosen is often accidental and it leaves out other moments we carry within us moments that help us to define our gestures shape our words memory the invention of a story i especially want to emphasize that last line memory the invention of a story can you unpack that for us uh sure um there's a couple of things. I mean, I think that we, I think that we, there's a falsity in a lot of people believing that if you write a memoir, which what, which is not what I was trying to do, that it has to be beholden to some kind of truth that can be verified. Right. And it's in a sense being, you know, fact checked. And that's led to some, some really sort of strange things where some writers have created com complete lies, complete fabrications by the very nature of their ability to write something that seemed that it was filled with verisimilitude or truth. Um, so I didn't want to make it that, you know, that Proustian thing where you, 
you eat the Madeline cookie and you have 3,000 pages of memories, you <laughs> right, know? Right. Um, that isn't, you know, what memory is. Uh, the memories that jolt us the most, that mean to, the most to us, they usually probably come in fragments. Right. Uh, you know, they come like lightning <laughs> on a hot summer day hitting the ground close by. Uh, they jar us out of our ordinary experiences to have to reckon with the relationship between our past and our present and whatever it is we imagine or want for our future. So if it's fragmented and selected like that, uh, we're selecting it, we've got to figure out a way to put it into a story, a story that's meaningful for me as a writer and if it's meaningful for me as a writer, then that story will become meaningful for right. whoever will read it. Whoever's willing so, to come in inside and experience it with you. Yeah. And then the other part of that is that, you know, writing is a, an act of choice. And you've got to decide what memories you include and, and which ones you do not include. But when you're making that choice, those other memories are still inside of you. They're, they're still circulating like cells, you know, inside your blood, right. inside your soul. And they're um, shaping things, right. even though you, you may not, you know, explicitly or literally write them. Uh, that's why I, I like the metaphor of a Mobis strip, you know, mm -hmm. that whenever you're looking at one side of something, the other side's being touched at the same time. Right. You, you mentioned... Um... Proust and that 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 uh, memorable scene, that very famous scene from *Remembrance of Things Past*, when uh, the character bites into a Madeleine a cookie and it transforms him back to his childhood and back to all these just incredible, rich, rich memories that he forgot that he even had. And this is an important metaphor uh, uh, today uh, in 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 memory studies, I guess you can say, or even neuroscience, you know, and how memory works. And yes. I can't help but think every time I watch that movie Ratatouille, that when <sighs> Anton Ego bites into the Ratatouille and he's suddenly transported to this little kid at the doorway of his house with a with a with a cut up knee and he's crying and his mom is by the stove and she serves him Ratatouille, that that's exactly the same kind of thing that uh, that Proust was writing about and that there may even be a, a nod to Proust in that particular scene. Absolutely, yeah. It's hard to, I mean, that's what makes it, uh, I wasn't really trying to critique Proust. I mean, that's what that's what is so important to writer, writing that you write about memories like that that seem so, uh, again, simple but from that particular experience, something becomes universal so that we start to recognize that what Proust is writing about right. is, oh God, you know, it has to do with comfort. It has to do with a sense of home, a safety, right. love. But, and also, and, and also uh, the yeah, fact is yeah. when you're, when you're my age, Fred, and when you're your age, I think we're relatively close in age, but when you're, you're our age, uh, there's a lot of, memories that we just don't have access to anymore and doing what you do writing memoir going deeply into these memories and thinking about family and thinking about childhood of course opens them up for us but if you were to look at the average 
person our age and 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 take all the memories that they could that they have that they return to over and over again and the older you get the more you return to the same memories over and over again and lose those memories that the 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 madeleine might have brought us back to things that we just haven't had access to in years but if you were to put all those together uh uh it's said by uh this one neuroscientist named uh Giroga Quinn, uh, I, I, I forget his name, I have his book right here, but um, you would basically have about a half a day of memories. The rest <laughs> of it is completely forgotten, yes. <laughs> completely forgotten. And it must be really difficult, uh, you know, to try to create new memories. And I'm wondering if, you know, first of all, what, what is, how do you get into the, when you were writing so, Sown in Earth, did some of the memories lead you into landscapes that you completely forgot about? Uh, sure. That's part of the invention of the story is that you're writing one memory and all of a sudden it triggers and you're remembering the echo of another moment. And you're like, oh, you know, where was that in time to that? And you just write it out. So... Um, but I mean, did any of I the memories surprise you where you go, oh my God, I haven't thought about that and just kind of maybe shot you with some sort of deep, deep emotion because we know we store our memories, you know, based on the emotions as well. Yeah, the, uh, of course. Um, the memory of why was it that I remembered that in this essay, the Puerto Rican house that the, the guy was in the side of the house with the knife in his hand and he stared at me. And then he threw it into the grass. Um, Cause it was just like, that was like a three second moment. And there was a lot of other larger things happening or why it was that I remembered uh, in another um, essay, these horses making love in a field out in Puerto Rico. <laughs> like why, you know, why that well, I sort of came back that. to me. It's making love, Fred. But no, but... But that's the problem in that it wasn't significant. It wasn't significant maybe to the child, but then as a writer, you're, um, right? Because I think what that neuroscience is, get, neuroscience is getting at too is that it will only be a half a page for some people because they're not storytellers or writers. Um, but if you're a storyteller or a writer, it's going to be much more because you're going to go into the, the details and discover these new memories and go down that lane of memory that someone else may not go to. Um, His name is uh, Rodrigo Quian Quiroga. He's originally from uh, Argentina, but I think he teaches at the University of Leicester in, in the UK. But the whole thesis of his book is that we store memories not according to the memory itself. That is the details of what we usually think of memory. We don't store photographs. We don't store images what we store are meanings and because the meanings, when we access these memories, the meanings are what connects us to an image, but the image may not have even have any kind of material basis. In fact, that it's just a complete uh, picture that we're creating or a complete movie in our head that we're creating, but it really has no material uh, essence whatsoever. And, yes. and, and even in some sense, he 
argues that that's how we see reality in general when we're walking you know, down the street or we're, we're walking to a, to a cabin to see where one of our antepasados used to write, that all those things that we're <coughs> creating, the oceans, the smell, all of that is based on the meaning of the memory to us and not the actual facts of it. So it makes this idea, well, you know, how can you write a memoir that is factual when we just don't have access to anything but the, the meaning, which is rooted in our emotions? That's right. And that's, that's why you invent a, you're going to invent a story in the end, I think. Yeah. Um, and it reminds me that I like, it's very interesting. I like this description because uh, what I did was, any memory that was meaningful when I was first starting to write the book, what I would do is I would force myself to write as much of it as I could in 500 words or less. Wow. <laughs> Why? Why? And, uh, well, because I wanted to, to get it down and I didn't want to force it into any kind of story yet. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see how much I could capture in kind of these lyrical, almost prose poem pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, and part of that also was because well, I was wait, writing. Wait, wait, wait. But what if the language oh, yeah. resisted and wanted to keep going beyond 500 words? Would you allow it? I would allow it later, but I didn't have to do, you know, allow it on that setting. Wow. You, see, you know, um, but part of that too was because I was, I guess I was physically constraining the writing because I was, be, I began writing this book on uh, blue note cards. And when I was, there were three by five blue cards. Uh, a gift from uh, a fellow Fresno poet and her husband, both of them poets, uh, Lori Bedeacon and uh, William Achilla. Oh my God, uh, when you said Achilla, Fresno poets, yeah. I thought I would know them. I don't know them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're a little younger than you. But uh, anyways, uh, she wrote a great book called The Book of Lamenting. But it, uh, she gave me, they sent me these cards because um, I wrote about it in a different book about a character using cards like that to write on. Mm -hmm. And then I used those cards to begin writing a lot of these memories. So I was writing things real short, uh, just trying to get the detail in the image. And then I could go back and start to expand it if I could see that that was necessary for that one. Right. Wow. And uh, I, I, that's, that sounds like a wonderful thing to try. I, 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 because I would imagine, lately I've been thinking a lot about memory, which of course is why I'm 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 reading this this book, and I I want to actually teach a class on memory. Um, sure. Uh, but one of the things that uh, that I've been trying to do is to is to access new memories, and I know it's very difficult at my age, uh, but I also know that the brain is plastic, and that if you could create new neurons you can create new connections and perhaps some of those neurons will connect to parts of the brain that i haven't had access to before uh don't ask me how successful i am at <laughs> at, at trying to do this but it is something that i'm trying to do and uh, that sounds like a brilliant exercise to just think of a memory 500 you know 500 uh uh words no more like a micro essay and i think the reason why it might be so brilliant is because my first reaction was well what if the language wants to escape and wants to go somewhere most likely the language is going to go down those neural pathways that you're used to and just lead you to the memories that you've you know that you've been recalling for years and years ever since you were a teenager uh 
that maybe if you have the language needs to resist that what, you know, 500 words, what pops out in a day or two that just can't be contained, maybe that might be something new, might make the resistance itself. Yes. And those same pathways of uh, neuro pathways are also the neuro pathways of us as writers. So if you don't, if I didn't limit myself, I would find myself writing a lot of thick description. <laughs> and I, you know, I'd be trying to create, re recreate the whole world. And then I'd have to stop myself and say, no, uh, you're trying to recreate the whole world as if you're writing a novel, but that's not what you're doing when you're trying to get back to the matter of memory. Wow. So I'm going to try you know, that. Limit side, yeah. I'm the try other it. thing for the, I think the other thing for that too, uh, which I kind of hear you bringing up, which was important to me was, um, and again, this is just in becoming a writer, but you do have to also go back to years in which, I like that metaphor, what was a year in your life in which you were living dangerously? What was a year in your life when your parents were living dangerously? What was a year in your life when there was a, a great amount of change or loss? Right. And if you just, once you go back to that one year and you start pinpointing the one memory for that that you have in mind that you remember, if you're limiting it to that one year, you'll start to see a whole bunch of patterns of different memories that relate in a certain way. See, but I can't, I, I can't do that, Fred. I can't go back and say, okay, <laughs> think of a year because I wouldn't think of a year. I would think of the pain or the, the dangerous living dangerously. And in my memory, I would mix it up with multiple years throughout my life. I couldn't distinguish. Well, I guess that's again, like the, I don't I guess for me, like limiting that writing to those cards or 500 words is like putting, uh, you know, blinders on a workhorse and telling that, <laughs> you know, right. so that the, unfortunately the mule or the horse becomes blind being down in the mind so much, but they can't tell because they're so used of focusing, you know, on that particular way of doing that. And, and, you know, and also, yeah, also you're, you, we were talking in an earlier conversation about the use of white space, how writers use white space. And I'm thinking of your exercise, 500 words. If you do 500 words and you're doing it on a normal document, there's going to be some white space. And that white space itself might contain the energy of, of, of undefined memory that you might be able to access. That's that's right. That part of the reason I did the 500 words is because I love looking at like texts that are just on a single page and have that border, like a, a painting, you know, on the wall Yeah. <laughs> and what's there on the edges or margins or on that border that's left unspoken or unsaid or unwritten. And, uh, what's potent about that? What kind of energy is there right. both for wh whoever will read it, but also for you. And also, I notice in Sown in Earth, a lot of the pieces are very short, could even be considered micro-essays or micro-memoir. Um, and I'm wondering if you did that consciously, or is that just how it, it, the language led you? Well, there was, there was the desire for me to do it consciously, but then I discovered that some pieces, you know, you never... 
as my mentor Pablo Medina told me, I think he was quoting something Dante, you know, would have written in Italian, but in English it's something like, you know, don't put the cart before the horse. <laughs> so you you know you you can't limit what the language wants to do. So even though I did those kind of things in a form of pre-writing, the language itself and certain essays said, no, Fred, this has to be much longer. And then I'd have to write it much longer. So you, it is important to let the language lead you to where it needs to go. Right. Unless you're trying to keep it at 500 words. And because and, I, yes. I guess there is some advantages also to practicing forms, to practicing the sonnet, to restricting uh, what the poet has to say to, to that particular form because of the, you know, the, I guess the bottled up spirit that keeps wanting to come out. And so has no other choice but to come out in the imagery and the rhythm and the words. Yes. But little, you know, little works like Dracula, you know, as soon as I just, you know, wrote that in that short form, I just knew, I was like, this doesn't need anything more. Just right. keep working on it, adding words, subtracting words, but that's the basic memory right there. And that's all you need. Right. Um, you were talking earlier about during this time that we're going through this unique time and all these different things going on in the world um, that you ask yourself, why do I write? Why, you know, why do I continue to write? I've been asking myself that too, which is strange because I've never really asked myself that very seriously before, but suddenly I find myself like, what's the point? I mean, you know, w w who wants to read fiction, my fiction when, you know, when there's so many other things to click on that will, you know, occupy our emotional space you know why do i could continue to do it and i'm wondering have you found any answers to that question no uh <laughs> <laughs> um the only answer i found is this uh i'm working on uh i'm like simultaneously writing a lot of short short fictions that would be flash fiction and I'm also deep into writing a book of poetry and the poems are, they're really just lyrical in nature and they really, uh, they drive me crazy because I, I work, I go through fits of really enjoying what I'm doing. So that's the number one thing. Uh -huh. Why I write is because I have to find, you know, pleasure and felicity in the, in the act of doing it. Um, and so, but then I go through despair when I'm like, who the hell after the pandemic is going to want to read a book of like poems about nature? <laughs> you know, right, you should be, yeah. uh, and in a way it seems like a, a totally un-Latino kind of writer thing to do as well, but um, it gives me pleasure. And then other people who have read them or published them makes me feel like, well, I'm doing something good, you know? I'm doing something that's okay. Keep going with this. I don't know what you mean I by think... unlantino. What is, what is... <laughs> oh, well, I should be writing like about, uh, I don't know, I should be writing about linguistic identity or I should be writing about, I should be writing about things that I can't actually write about because I have to appropriate them because my, my family didn't have to, you know, immigrate here um, from another country because... Puerto Rico has always been a colony of the U.S. 
So, but your writer, your writing has never felt the need to answer some sort of uh, genre imperative imposed upon an imaginary reader. Anyway, you've always been free to write. Uh, I guess what you call non-Latino. <laughs> you're you're right, and that's you know I bring it up, but that you know just because it's a little bit of uh, wondering about why I write or what I do, like right. why do I want to focus on nature and birds right. and right. Uh, being in kind of uh, you know, beautiful settings that push the pandemic totally away. Um, but that's important, the freedom that you describe. Uh, that's always important to me that we're free to be who we need to be, especially when we're looking at a blank page. There's so much freedom in what we can, you know, add in there. I think another thing circling around some of these questions is that, uh, which I just recently went back to was, uh, in the past, I had did a lot of work with uh, Lewis Hyde's book, uh, The Gift, and that whole dichotomy of us living in a in a culture in which we think that everything we produce has to immediately go to the marketplace and make some kind of money or status. Um, and the idea of the gift is that, you know, when we are living our lives, we are gifted with certain memories or experiences. And they are so special or moving or profound in a way that we decide we want to craft that into some kind of work. And when we do that, what we're trying to do is offer that gift to other people. Right. And we don't want to get paid for it. We're not asking for any kind of status. But there's something inherent to that work that we are sharing and gifting to someone else. Well, so part of that, part of that of why why we write or why I write is always to kind of remind myself that again, that, well, I, I had a father who only had a third grade education, which I write about a lot in this book, right? Sown and earth is all about experiences that should not have made a person become a writer, but somehow those experiences gifted me the possibility to love language, to dwell in language, to dwell in imagination and memory, and create something that I feel is a work of art. Um, so I'm always going to stay kind of beholden to that idea that we are gifted things and we need to share them with others to share with them that very gift. Yeah, I, I love that idea that uh, that's why you write and that's why you're going to continue, right? And that's why I love your books, Fred. They're, they, they are a gift, and you share a lot uh, a lot with your reader, and I, I definitely appreciate it. The book is called Sown in Earth. And, uh, yeah, keep writing, because if, if Fred Arroyo wasn't writing, what else would there be for you to do? What would you do? <laughs> would you be a doctor, a lawyer, a, <laughs> a baker? That's all there is. Yeah, it's a hot. That, yeah, I don't. Those questions are weird. <laughs> Unfortunately, I mean, because those questions, you know, that they're weird because you know, we're even though they're all there is all this gift stuff about it, and there there is this angst. Or we were talking earlier this morning about the difference between malaise and uh, and and you, Anui, and, and you, yeah. And uh, even though there's these things that happen. Uh, those are temporary, but writing is always there, like 
some friend <laughs> waiting for you to come back to them. They're the one thing that I always say that never lets you down. Uh, my writing's always there. I can abuse it. I can ignore it sometimes. But when I return to it and really give myself to it, it is waiting to help me create something better than myself or the world I live in. So I couldn't imagine really doing anything else. Right. Uh, it's, a, it's important if you're going to write to be committed to it, even though we live in a culture in which, again, that's commitment to writing is something a lot of people don't want to talk about very much. Right. And um, <clears throat> the book is, again, once again, Sown in Earth, Essays of Memory and Belonging. Fred, thank you for joining us. I wish we had... Um, you, you know, I wish we could do a show a week. It's 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 great to to talk to you. Thank you, Daniel. I really appreciate uh, being uh, on words on the wire, and uh, this is just another. Although this program was started before the pandemic, another part of I think what a lot we haven't talked about, but that a lot of writers and readers are understanding that even in these very dire times. There's all kinds of programs like your program in which we can get connected again with writing and the uh, importance, the essentialness it has in our lives. So thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.